Well, welcome back to a For Our Faith podcast. It's been about 10 months since we've posted anything uh, on the site. And tonight, a few of us are together, and we're going to discuss why we've elected not to vote, considering that this coming Tuesday, I believe, or in two Tuesdays, there's an election day, and it's absorbed the attention of the nation. And probably if you look at the news or you check the newspaper, it's what's constantly blaring. We see the signs all over the yards in our communities, and so it's very hard to ignore. And so we want to discuss why is it in a nation where probably the vast majority of us have grown up with strong encouragement and a lot of teaching to cast a ballot for some candidate, why we've elected in this process to say no to that option. And so as we look at this, we've got a few questions we'd like to address. And the first one there is why have we elected not to vote? And we'd like to get a little personal there and each kind of go around the table and explain how it is that we've come to this conviction. And so for me, it's maybe a little different than the other two brothers sitting here in front of me. Um, This is something that I've inherited. This position is not something that was taught to me. Um, It wasn't, or it had nothing to do with the Trump and Hillary debate a while back. And I didn't read a book about it. Um, I didn't listen to some engaging podcast somewhere, is nothing like that. But both of my parents, I grew up in a home um, where my parents were from another country, quite literally. So I grew up actually speaking Serbian, Romanian, and some English. Um, I grew up eating palachinka, sarma, and oblatna. Um, I grew up with a strong sense of community. And as I processed that, um, we were a different people in some way in this country. But the most important thing, aside from all that, was that I understood that the kingdom of God extended into Yugoslavia at the time, where my dad was from. It extended into Argentina, where his mother was from. It extended into Australia, where I have other family. The kingdom of God was so much bigger than this. And so to align with the country where I was when I had family and fellow believers elsewhere, was a very challenging concept to me. It, it was even a competing theory. And so that would be the, the general focal point that I have. So when I started to come into the circles where voting was either an option and even promoted and, and yet even encouraged by believers, I struggled with it. And, and it came to me that way. So that, that's the conviction that I have is one that, that I, I held I have from my youth, and then was challenged, and that's where I sit today, um, having challenged that topic and then finding other, finding other brethren such as yourselves and many others who have elected not to vote. Um, but yeah, I'd like to hear from you two brothers as well. Yeah, so for um, where I come from, I guess, is probably where a lot come from, and uh, having been brought up in the public school systems, um, really, I, I voted in the 2000 election, and as I think back on that, um, why I voted, for, for me, it was really clear. Um, I was doing my Christian American citizen obligation, my moral responsibility as a citizen, and um, having been taught, that's, that's all I knew. Um, I was shortly married um, after that, and... I, I, since then, I've never voted. And I, for, for me, the, the journey was probably a little bit more. Um, at first, I, I became just disillusioned with the whole process. Um, the, the campaigning and the debates, uh, I just simply lost interest in it. And initially, it was just more out of a carelessness and a neglect. I just simply, I had moved, and so I didn't uh, register. And I guess I just felt what's the point? My, my vote doesn't really matter. Uh, but as time went on and I began, uh, to see a little clearer the teachings of uh, Christ that he, as a, as a, as a King and as a establishing a, a literal nation, um, and just looking at the implications of that and, and taking the Sermon on the Mount and then literally trying to apply them to my life and realizing that this kingdom that he was establishing, um, 
was actually the answer and the fix, that it was actually the only means by which all of the broken humanity that in which we live and what we're voting for or what we're voting against, the only solution is actually found in him. And so um, as that became more real to me, I realized that um, to participate in not, not only for, uh, you know, logical reasons, I guess, of why the voting process is um, ineffective, um, looking at it just as a higher calling to the Lord as king and as an ambassador of his kingdom, how can I then, if I'm literally part of that, how then can I partake in the affairs of another state or of another country, another nation? So it, that that's where it ended. Um, and now it's, it's much more not out of a lack of um, caring or apathy towards the state or towards what is going on in the social arena with abortion and um, war and, and many of the issues that are out there today, the economy. It's not an apathy towards that. It's not a not caring. But more so now I see that the church is the only means and the only mechanism by which um, there's any hope to actually fix those social uh, ills that, that are all around us. And so through the instrument of the church, if we, I, I just really, I feel called to invest more in building and expanding his church, his kingdom here on the earth as the means to address abortion, as the means to address um, the economic concerns, as the means to address war and peace um, and true justice, that it's, it's going to be through the expansion of the church here upon earth um, that the, the will of the Father in heaven could be done here upon the earth as it is in heaven, that's going to be the only true means by which we're able to actually effectively address this, much more than just going and simply casting a vote. Well, I have to admit that I voted a few more elections uh, further, so I think it was 2008 was the last time I voted. I can still remember that evening, and I don't remember why we had stopped by another couple's house, but the returns from the election were coming back and it looked pretty strongly in favor of the candidate that I had not elected. And I remember feeling kind of heavy, like, oh no, what if things really unravel? And, and having that, that downcast uh, sense of that, that depressed spirit. And then I think by the time things had come around the, the following uh, election in 2012, a few things that had really kind of happened almost uh, unconsciously. I don't remember really going back to address that topic of uh, should I vote, should I not vote? Is that an appropriate thing for me to do? But what it really formed in those four years was an understanding like the brother shared of, what is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean to function as part of that? And that if I'm really out and, and preaching or sharing that the kingdom of God is the answer to mankind, what are practical ways I can demonstrate that? And I felt like one of the most practical ways to undermine what I had shared was, in fact, to pin my hopes on some kind of fix that didn't involve Jesus is Lord. During that same time, I remember going, uh, taking a man out to breakfast that I was hoping to share the gospel with, and, and all he could talk about that whole morning was this idea of where things were going, and, and he was part of, I'll say, a, a pretty local level of uh, the government machinery, and I don't know if he was an alderman or what he was, and, and just it just wore him down, and the burden and the concern and really, it gave me a platform to be able to share. You know, it's interesting, you're concerned about all these things. I think they're legitimate things to be concerned about. We live in a, in a scary world. We live in a wicked world. But while you are trying to get the vote out, there is a far more effective way to bring change. And it's slow, and it's not coercive. But it's one heart at a time. At the same time that that sense and faith was growing in me, I was also teaching uh, some government classes. And in some of the books that we were reading, it just helped us get a, maybe a better sense of, of what government actually is. And I think just realizing the coercive nature of government 
as an institution, and that is by its design, and that is from God. But, but seeing myself on one hand as a non-resistant Christian who would never uh, pick up a gun and, and shoot someone, or who would feel that violence is never the answer, the idea that on the other hand I was involved in a coercive system began to weigh on me. So I would say at the same time that my understanding of the kingdom of God was growing, my sense of the, what government was and how it functioned by its design made it clear to me that not only was it something I could no longer uh, involve myself in through voting, but it wasn't something that I was even interested in participating in. Yeah, I appreciate that, brothers. And um, something else I, I wanted to address why this burden is on our heart. As we look back into history, um, as both brothers have shared, the kingdom of God, and what, what is that? And how, how does that sit in relationship to the government around us? I think as we address just a few questions that we've got here before us um, that are commonly raised, I believe we'll see the, the same theme coming again and again and again, the perspective of... W- where does our citizenship lie? And one of the things that's been a burden is somehow, some way, this has been lost over years. I'm going to read just a couple portions from an article I found that are um, not even 100 years old. And for many that are listening, this will uh, resonate with you. This was an article written about the Apostolic Christian Church in <clears throat> Akron, Ohio. And uh, here's just a couple pieces. The, um, the author says this, So great is the love of these church members for their fellow men that they refuse to vote. Because to cast a ballot for one man, you are voting against another. They refuse to quarrel, for a quarrel is breaking a commandment. And they refuse to carry firearms even in time of war, for to carry arms, they say, is to endanger the lives of others. But brotherly love is not the only precept of the Apostolic Christian Church on 5457 Noble Avenue. Its fundamental doctrine lies in the words of Christ, My kingdom is not of this world. Later on, it goes on to say here that Apostolic Christians refuse to have anything to do with politics according to their elders. They never vote. Take no voice in governmental affairs. There are other reasons besides brotherly love, though. In the first place, the elders say, the interests of the church and the state are widely divergent. Each should let the other alone. Government has to do with worldly things. The church, with spiritual things. Of course, one elder explained, we realize that government is necessary, but we believe it can get along without us. To our way of thinking, the church and state cannot mix their interests. History will corroborate what I say. And so those are just a a few... This is really a beautiful article, if you were to go through and read the whole thing, and the testimony of the church at that time. But this is one piece that, in speaking with many brethren in the Apostolic Christian Churches of America, it seems to have been lost or forgotten if it was once held as strongly as this article suggests. I'm wondering, do you brothers have any thoughts? It's not one of the questions, but it just kind of comes to my mind right now. Do you have any thoughts on where that would have changed? I mean, I know that that's a question that I've been asked a number of times by brothers. Just an insight of when did that, you know, this is where our, our forefathers stood. It wasn't even questioned. And now today we're kind of the minority, almost a minority voice that's seeming to be fairly radical even if we would look back at the politics a hundred years ago, it would almost in, in our in our way of thinking, it would be, it would have been so much purer between the candidates. It would have been the lesser of two evils, so to speak, would have been maybe harder to even determine because maybe both candidates compared to today would have looked better. And yet back then, our forefathers didn't have anything to do with it. Um, and and so today now, there's this picking between lesser of two evils, and the question comes: Well, when did we as apostolics begin to and we haven't discussed this, but I don't know if maybe it's the wrong question to ask, but do you brothers have any thoughts on what maybe turned the tide there or what caused things to so radically shift among our people? 
I don't know that I'm qualified to answer that. It's not something I've looked at directly. Two thoughts would come to my mind. First, one of the advantages is in up through, let's say, about 1920, you still have a number of brethren that are immigrants. And so they're coming, and they are not identifying themselves directly as being American. Not that they're necessarily directly identifying as Yugoslavian or Swiss or German or Romanian or Hungarian, but they have not necessarily taken on an identity that says, I am an American. Voting is clearly an American institution, at least in 1920. It would possibly at some limited level have been in Germany, maybe more in Switzerland. It absolutely would not have been part of uh, a heritage from Eastern Europe. So I think as we had less immigrants and languages start to languages dropped, which I, I think was the right decision, but as American language and culture comes, uh, American style education, no question it would have gone from voting being almost like a, a novelty to many people to an expectation of the culture. And so I would say taking on an American identity brought with it then this uh, incredible sense of community pressure to, to vote. And especially that pressure comes in educationally. It's still there educationally, but if you would have been educated 150 years ago in an American school system, 100 years ago, 50, 75 years ago, I think even more. Um, the, the truth is simply that uh, voting turnout, if anything, has dropped among adult Americans in the last century, probably at an all-time high in the late 1800s. So I think the adoption of American culture, one of the other things, and, and I, I, I don't know if I should mention this, I do think that um, our stance as non-combatants was is beautiful in that it kept us from violating Jesus' teachings on, on uh, non-resistance and, and, and not doing evil. I will say that I think one of the, the consequences of being actually in the military, though, is that a tremendous amount of patriotism was inserted through um, servicemen that were apostolic. Uh, and brothers in the church. And I, I don't think they, they recognized it at the time. I don't think that was necessarily the intention, but I do think an in, unintended consequence was um, much more of a sense of, I am an American. Uh, people were telling them, you really played your, your part, uh, and things like that. And I think all of those sorts of things tended to create a little bit more of a sense of, I am part, rather than maintain the distinction that just simply says, that's just not. I am. That's not the group that I'm with. I am in another kingdom. I think it had the tendency to blur the distinction between the two kingdoms, even though I don't feel like it was a poor testimony strictly in terms of non-resistance. I wonder also if, thinking of some of the heritage that, that I would have of being imprisoned and you know, government and some of the places that my family would have come from would not be nearly as favorable as living in a country like America. So appreciating those freedoms in a carnal sense, and, and I, I say carnal, I certainly appreciate them too. I don't want to make them sound sinful, but yet it is, it is still of the flesh that we appreciate those freedoms. Does that then allow for some more camaraderie with just the local government and saying, yes, I will support because I appreciate because of these freedoms. And that can get us uh, mixed up in, in some of the ways of this world, one of them being fixing the world's problems through the world's ways, which is what we're, we're addressing here today. And we're finding that really, <clears throat> if you were to vote against the subject of abortion, you know, whoever, whatever candidate, you know, you go there and, and, and you're not for abortion, you cast your vote. Essentially, that doesn't change your neighbor's mind to abort their child. But if you were to go and show them the love that you have for your children and your family and, and to show them the beauty that God has, this heritage of the Lord, this child, that may change hearts and minds. 
you know, if, if you go and, and you're opposed to homosexuality and, and there's some something on the ballot that, you know, some candidate, whoever, and you can you can vote for the, the one who opposes, you know, those trends. But that's not going to change the world. But if you show them the beauty of the one flesh union that God has he's created, you know, that will change hearts and minds. And if, if, if you're opposed to war and, and you vote in some way against that, well, but that's not going to change hearts and minds either. If you go out there and show and live a non-resistant attitude, loving, loving everyone around you, showing that in a very real, tangible way, I think that's the key to changing the world we're in. And I think the problem with this whole discussion at times is that when you cast that ballot, it tends to give you the sense of, and I say this not having done it, just observing it, so maybe your brothers can speak for more more of this side of it, but I assume it tends to give you this concept like, I have done something. I've now just done something. But, and then maybe it, does it give you the sense of like, now I don't have to do it in this other way. And, and kind of you can step back from this obligation that you really have um, this beautiful opportunity to show the world how to fix the, the problems that are there. And Jesus gave us those answers. And that's just a couple thoughts that come to mind. Yeah, no, I, I know uh, in 2000 when I voted, I, I felt that I was certainly, um, I was voting against abortion. I mean, I, that was one of the big, um, I, I hadn't considered many of the other issues, but as a, as a Christian, that, that was, I, I felt my moral responsibility. And um, thinking about the abortion issue, um, recently a couple brothers and I were visiting and we were talking just about that particular subject of what is the real crime in, in, in abortion. And I think a lot of times uh, the, the culture that we live in, they, they post these pictures of the babies, and that pulls at our heartstrings, obviously. But from a Christian perspective, um, you know, our belief is, is that those, those little children that are being aborted, as terrible as that is, they are, um, we do believe they're populating heaven. You know, there is a a great population of, of children um, there in heaven because of this atrocious act that God is um, in some way redeeming it still for good. And so what is the real what is the real crime there is not necessarily that a child has died, as terrible as that is to us and as much as that pulls at our heartstrings, but the real crime is that there's mothers out there that have such wicked hearts that they would actually kill their children, that they would have such a murderous heart they would kill their children. And there's no legislature, legislation in the world that's going to be able to actually fix that problem of the heart of the mother that wants to kill her child. And so even if that legislation's passed and, and a law is now put forth and we're going to rely on the state to use their sword to force those mothers to no longer abort their children, yet if their heart hasn't changed, now the, that child is being raised by a mother who has a murderous heart, that if she would have been allowed by the law, she would have killed that child. And now that child is being brought up by a, by a mother that has a murderous heart and now is going to spend eternity somewhere and is going to be far more um, accountable as they continue to live out their life here now. So I'm not by any means obviously advocating f to keep that that way, but the, the real fix there is the gospel message. The only hope for that mother is not us enforcing by the, by the sword that this mother is no longer allowed to kill her, her child, but it's the hope of the gospel that we can come and we can preach to her um, the message that Christ has brought, and that message can change her heart. And among the kingdom of God, within the church, there's no, there's no murderers, there's no abortionists. It's not a challenge that we have to face. And so walking out of that booth... In 2000, I felt like I probably did something, you know, pretty big there. That I was gonna, I was gonna prevent these mothers from being able to kill their children. But as I realize now, um, it takes much more love and much more intention to be able to bring this message to, as Jason, as you mentioned, go to our neighbors and to be able to share this message, and hopefully be able to bring them into the church where genuinely their heart can be changed and they can be given a new heart and be made a new creature. And then we've actually made an impact on the world. And it hasn't been done through legislature, but it's been done through the, the work of Christ changing and putting a new heart in. And that's a fix that, that will, will be lasting. Yeah, appreciate that, brother. And 
I guess just looking at the questions in front of us here, let's just jump into the, the one of the few that we've got. Um, so doesn't God expect us to vote against evil? And I think this question is, is generally asked of those, those of us who have the Holy Spirit of God, shouldn't we be having the wisdom to go in there and to do his will? Of all people, shouldn't we be the one to do this? So what would you brothers uh, say to that? I would say there's, there's a few um, comments I would have. First, I think it's clear in Scripture, if you go to Romans 12, that, that the genuine Christian response to evil is not to vote against it, but to overcome it with good. And so what we're looking at in voting is overcoming bad government policies with either less bad government policies or better government policies. Either way, I'm fixing uh, a policy problem with another policy solution. And that can kind of uh, alternate back and forth. I guess the other challenge is that while we have the Holy Spirit, we don't necessarily know all the complexities. Being a Christian does not give us a thorough grasp of the issues. And what I find is that certain issues, I think that are valuable, that are important, that are sinful, naturally absorb almost all of our interests. For example, I think we'll just say it, the Republican Party is the family value party. It's generally the party that opposes abortion. But the challenge is that Historically, or at least in the last generation, Republicans also tend to be more heavily pro-war and things like that. And so there's a two life issues. So which there's competing, and, and ultimately I, I'm choosing not to overcome evil through a vote. I'm choosing the lesser of two evils. And I'm trying to assert that because I have the Holy Spirit, I can now play God almost and determine which candidate will lead to the worst consequences. I think that's very difficult uh, to assume simply because uh, historically um, you can can argue, as one writer does, that anti-war candidates give us wars and anti-tax candidates give us taxes. It's just political behavior is not always linked to even political views when you consider historical record yeah i think that's well said i think that if the issue is just simply going and casting your vote against evil i i think that i don't know that any of us would stand in the way of going and just casting our vote against evil if that's just simply all it was but when we look at the larger picture of what this actually is it we can't reasonably conclude that the system is even asking us to do that what we're being asked to do is to come and vote for a particular candidate who happens to be the commander-in-chief and who has the responsibility given to him by the, the people of the United States to uh, make those hard calls in time of war, whether or not to drop bombs or declare war even. And so the issue isn't just as simple as casting a vote against evil. I don't know of any ballot box that is going to have a, a, a slot there, vote against evil or vote for it's just not how it's designed or set up. So ultimately what we're doing is why we might maybe voting against abortion or homosexuality or whatever the those evils are, a lot of times it is at the sake, as, as Joel, as you shared, it, it's at the cost of supporting something like a preemptive strike or if the commander-in-chief declares war. And which one are we more comfortable with there? On one hand, we're destroying life, and as you shared, but on the other hand, we're destroying life, or at least, and at what point do we have to accept some moral responsibility to, for that action of giving our support to a man that we know that is his job? That's what we're voting for, and that's why we're putting him in there is to make those hard calls. And so the, the issue of, of voting against evil, yes, God wants us to speak against evil, and I think that's even partly why we've elected not to vote is because it's an evil system that is actually in order to vote and in order to partake, there has to be a compromising of our values and of our faith of what Christ our King has laid out for us. And um, that's not something that, that we believe the Lord would ask us to do. And that's even why we're electing not to is because there's no way 
to not partake in that evil by casting a vote. I appreciate that. I'm going to go back for a minute um, just to what I started off with in this idea of kingdoms. And we would recognize there are two, especially growing up. Again, I, I was blessed with that understanding to the degree that I was. <clears throat> and like the brothers have mentioned, you know, you're choosing the lesser of two evils, but you're still in some sense choosing an evil. Um, so a little personal on this, on this note here, somebody in the United States elected a president who was commander-in-chief and decided to go take planes over and bomb my grandparents' farm. So we're over here speaking to them, and, and they, they said with some levity, when are you going to stop bombing us? You know, And we, we kind of laughed at that, thankful that they were safe and, and they weren't killed over there. They couldn't farm, and so um, we, we helped provide for them. But I think that's what we're talking about is, so here we are getting involved. Um, we're thinking with our American caps on, and, and we're, we're putting a commander-in-chief in. We put our vote in, and yet there are brethren elsewhere that are suffering because of the decision that we help make. Um, whereas opposed, you can choose the other side. And so maybe it's not killing on foreign soils. Maybe it's, it's killing babies. And, and so there, you know, there's those kinds of things that come up. And it, what's the right solution? So the, the choosing of the lesser of two evils, does that even seem to contradict what the Lord has taught us by, by overcoming evil with good, like the brother has shared there in Romans 12. We, we tend to focus on Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, but if we would just glance back just a few verses in Romans 12, I think one thing we want to address here, too, is that the idea is not just that we not vote, as if we just sit back in our easy chairs and now we've, we've got the, the time off, we've saved the time for going to the poll and putting, the, the, you know, putting our vote in. It's more so, what, what does God call us to? And it's, it's more of a, a positive reaction here to the world and the problems that we see, and overcoming evil with good is the driving motivation. I think that's a great point, too, that we need to clearly state that we don't believe that quietism is the solution, um, and, and that's partly why we're even doing this podcast. Okay, another question here we've got before us. Um, as American citizens, you enjoy the benefits of freedom of religion, good roads, law enforcement, social services, etc. How do you as American citizens reconcile receiving these benefits without participation? It's a good question. And I, and I think it's, it's one that on its face looks pretty convincing. I would simply say this, scripturally, the response to blessings is a thankful heart. And the question now is, if I really believe that God reigns above men, even though um, the systems are part of, under the sway of the evil one, yet God is superintending all, then that thanks goes first to God. And I think it's, it's appropriate, too, to say, uh, I'm thankful for where I live. I appreciate that. <clears throat> the, the question then becomes what are those other things does maybe the question comes to me like this as thankful as i am for that what would i do to prevent that from changing so there's a number of people who would say you know i i've got my guns and i would fight to the death for freedom i can't remember if it's vermont or new hampshire they have a, a state slogan live free or die and, and I think that comes from the, from the American Revolution. Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death. And what that really meant is I'm willing to fight. Assuming that most of our audience's non-resistance is, is accepted and, and acknowledged. So am I willing to use the coercive force of government in order to maintain a very comfortable situation that I live in? And, and I don't think that should, it's easy to say that because as I look out the window, it's a beautiful evening, it's a peaceful place that we're in, the sun is setting, and we just feel comfortable, we feel peaceful. But if we're honest, it's not as though difficulty is an impossibility, but I think we have to face that possibility and that reality 
and, and be honest with ourselves. Can I accept if the freedoms, the liberties that we do enjoy, the safety? What if that were to be taken? I think it's also a good opportunity. We talk to our children um, in, a, in a way to, to help them to, to be thankful and appreciate things. Um, often it'll be like on the 4th of July. We'll have a little discussion about things. Why is it that we're grateful? I have personal experience um, with courts, limited anyway, and with police. And I will say, I think it's reasonable to be thankful that while American government, all government by nature is coercive, we're blessed that we don't see that all the time. In fact, it's probably why we don't think of government as being coercive. Had we lived in Yugoslavia, that would be obvious to us. I have personally been arrested. I've been handcuffed. And they were so pleasant. And they apologized afterward. And they let me preach to them while I was in the squad car. It seemed apologetic. And it's true that probably that's not going to happen very many places in the world. And I think we have to acknowledge that that, that is a gift from God. But I don't know that I'm going to rate that as so high as that I can't live without it, and therefore I'm willing to use coercion in order to prevent suffering. And I guess <clears throat> to this question about participation, I've this question has been asked to me before as well directly, but can we for a moment define participation? Like, is participation simply just casting a vote? How about, you know, like we, we pay our taxes and we obey the laws of our land. We, we participate in, in many ways. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's been my observation that we participate more than the, the um, average American. So if you think of Romans 13, in light of that scripture, we don't speed down the roadways. In light of like Matthew 17, you know, tax evasion is absent among us. And in light of Matthew 25, we're always looking for ways to feed the hungry, to meet the needs of the community, however we're able to, we're desirous. We, we desire to do this because of what our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, has commanded and encouraged us to do. We do it with, with a cheerful heart. And so I, I do wonder about this, this term of participation as if just not casting that vote I mean, we don't participate. We're basically, you know, backbenching it somewhere and kind of careless about our country. We very much appreciate and are willing to do that. And I would say as, as Christian people, we are called to even go above and beyond that. That law sets the minimum. It's not the standard for us. I'll, I'll give you one story that I, I was really blessed by reading um, in Holmes County here um, about the Amish. Now, I, I will say, I, I recently drove through the Amish uh, country in Ohio, Holmes County there, and saw some unfavorable things <laughs> with Trump flags flying, and, and there was something, uh, I, I just, I've seen pictures of this, but I, it was hard to, hard to believe it until you see it with your own eyes. And so I saw it, rolled down the windows, and just, I, I needed to hear the, the, the feet of the horse on the roadway, and, and to hear the flags kind of waving in the air there, it was just really something to see that sight. And there was a reason why that gathered so much attention. There was a reason why that was such an eye-catcher, because it was just so contrary. It was just so opposite. Uh, what, what the debate and everything that's, that's incorporated, the strife, the, the words that are exchanged in these presidential debates, this, this attitude was, was so contrary to what's understood as this plain way of living. So anyways, I'm going to speak more positively there. And say that there was an article that was written. I picked it up there as I was waiting at the checkout line in, in Holmes County. And they uh, described that Amish people, although they do pay taxes, there was something they recognize about their buggies. Their buggies' wheels tear up the roads a little bit more than our nice rubber ones do. They recognize that. They make lines down the road and they kind of destroy them a little bit. And so they go above and beyond and actually pay additional monies to cover for those roads. And I really appreciated that. I, I thought to myself, see, there's one way that you, you can recognize that uh, amongst you and then offer to the governments of our land. And so, yeah, the, the idea of participation, I certainly would, would hate to limit that as merely just casting a ballot. Yeah, I appreciate what you've shared. I think something that we often say is that what we're trying to demonstrate to the world is what the world 
would look like and what it could look like if everyone would follow Jesus Christ as their king. And so um, believing that we have the world's solutions to the world's problems uh, given to us by Jesus Christ and through his gospel, it's not that we're not willing to participate. In fact, we're, we're fully willing to engage and participate and we believe that we have the answers that would prevent wars. We believe that we have the answers that would prevent abortion. We believe that we have the answers on how we ought to respond with our taxes and obeying the speed limits. And and quite frankly, if 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 we would live according to that, then the law enforcement and those kinds of things they're not needed because of us. Um, as as followers of Jesus Christ, the law is not needed to uh, sit there and and check our speed. Um, hopefully, you know, hopefully we're keeping those laws. And so um, believing that we have the answers to the, the world's problems and be able to demonstrate to the world what it could look like if all would follow Christ, it's not a, it's not a pulling away from the, the, the culture. It's not a pulling away out of society. It's actually actively engaging it and showing them what it, what it can look like. And so I, I think what you've shared there, identifying what is participation and actually accurately defining it um, as, as non-resistant Christians uh, I, I believe uh, we are actively participating. It's just in a way that the world doesn't necessarily always appreciate and doesn't always acknowledge as such. I would add one more thing. should have probably said this first. I think prayer, and any Christian who prays knows how active participation that is. And I think, I haven't talked to these brothers about it, I'm probably confident that they've had similar prayers. As we look uh, and you see unrest and you see how people are worked up, torn up, and you see trends in society, and you see that's going to affect your children, it, it can't but move you to pray. But with that prayer, I've never prayed, dear Lord, help Donald Trump to be president because at least he's a Republican or um I doubt if most of our audience would naturally incline toward the Democratic Party, but but either way, it, it's appropriate thought. But I try to keep my prayer in the vein of asking the Lord for whatever result that he sees would purify his people and open doors for the gospel. And sometimes we have a sense that Peace and prosperity brings an open door. I'm not saying it, it doesn't ever, but historically, um, I think in one of the epistles, Paul says that a door was opened and there were many adversaries. In fact, in the difficulty, that door was opened, and if that's God's will, that we would be hesitant to walk through it. So I guess, to me, that that's a significant part of participation. Yeah, thank you for adding that, brother. And as I think about this concept and imagine, you know, that there are those that truly are inspired, um, boldly inspired to suggest that we, the three of us here, as well as every believer, ought to be at the polls. And because we need to be voting for doing the work of the Lord. And I'm just reminded of 1 Corinthians 1.10, this whole speak the same mind um, view that we have there. And we want to be of one mind, we want to be together. Now, Brother Joel, you mentioned, you know, we're probably all more Republican, the, the audience that we have here. But I, I grew up, like, with a Democratic audience in the church. I can't tell you how heated that debate got when it was brought up in the back kitchen in church about trying to come to this conclusion. Is this, you know, <clears throat> and so I know, like, avoid it. Like, let's just not talk politics amongst us. But wait a minute, like, if this is such an important thing. Like, what, you know, but we find there what the same thing I'm seeing in the world. Uh, uh, Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12.20. I have this here. Um, For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as you would not. Lest there be... Now, now just listen to this list. And I want you to think about the presidential debates, those of you who watch those or pay attention to them. Lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, Strifes, backbitings, whispers, swellings, tumults. When I think about this list, it, it just rings true to me of the picture of, of some of these situations and the, the tension that, that comes there. And 
but, but I go back to the statement there, that, that thought, if this is so important and we really want to be doing the Lord's work, like, shouldn't we be having like brothers meetings everywhere and discussing this and like, brother, like who, who is God's, you know, who is, who is God's servant and looking at fruits and things like that? Shouldn't we be able to collectively say the apostolic Christian, whatever is going to vote so-and-so because it's the Lord's will, you know, but instead it seems that we can't even discuss that. And there's reasons for that, and I, I trust that we're, we're trying to address those here this evening. Um, any other further thoughts, brothers? I, I have another question here. Okay, so Paul used his citizenship. Why is it wrong to exercise our citizenship by voting? It is interesting. Uh, of the apostles, Paul seems to be the only one who can say I'm a citizen? And that certainly uh, brought with it certain rights, as in he was, I believe, entitled to a trial by jury. He couldn't just be beaten um, without trial in order to extract a confession. I guess it comes down to how we use citizenship. I don't think it would be wrong if we were arrested and we were to be beaten to say, I'm pretty certain that according to the laws that you're hired or that you're um, constitutionally, in some cases, sworn to uphold, I feel like you're violating that. I think is is one thing. Again, it goes back to the fact that we would be using our citizenship in a way that could have coercive consequences. And, and again, that that's probably uh, sticks out to me most because... I do teach about government, and I think it's it's worth considering that government isn't reason, it's not eloquence, it's simply force. And I think it was it's kind of a paraphrase of a quote by George Washington, the founding father, so to speak. They understood the nature of government because they experienced the old world. We probably don't sense that. So to vote would be to exercise citizenship in a way that, I am, I'm not simply saying, I don't like evil, I'd like righteousness. What I'm saying is, this particular candidate, his or her policies, the policies of the legislature, um, I'm voting that they carry out their platform or their program at the expense of going to people's houses, arresting them potentially, uh, and on and on and on. And that, in a sense, is where I would feel very uncomfortable exercising citizenship. I, I remember at one time um, I had vehicular insurance and a, a dog came, somebody's dog came and we, the dog was killed, but it was a very large dog and it did about $2,500 worth of damage, $2,200, worth of damage. I may as well have hit a, a, a calf or something. And I remember the insurance company really wanting to go after that person and I thought, well, I'm paying you insurance. I can't believe you're not uh, just willing to recoup. That was my first experience with insurance companies. And, uh, and I don't want to paint that all as, as negative. But what they basically said is, we want to know that person's address because we're going to get the money out of them. We will sue them. And, I'm, and I told them, well, I can't tell you the address because if, if you're telling me up front you're going to sue them to get the money to pay me, I'm not comfortable with that. And, and I... Felt like we were willing to take the $2,500 loss or whatever it was. I, I did talk to my insurance agent. I said, I didn't get anywhere with them. Um, would you mind talking one more time? And, and he had a good relationship with whatever company. I don't remember what it was. And I feel the same way is in a sense, in order to maybe get what I want, I'm willing to stick it to somebody else. Potentially, that's not going to be directly in my mind. Had I not had that conversation with the insurance agency, had they just known where it was in suit, I would never have known. Um, and I don't know that I would have felt responsible for the, for that, turning in that claim, but it just hit me that often there are consequences I couldn't have uh, ever expected. So something else I want to bring out here in Acts 16, Acts 22, which is usually the, the portions there where Paul recognized his citizenship. He didn't vote there. It's not like Paul voted 
in Acts 16 or Acts 22, just like Brother Joel mentioned here, he just appealed to the law that existed. What I find particularly beautiful about, especially Acts 16, is he allowed himself to be beaten and prisoned. And then when they let him free, he goes, oh, by the way, I'm Roman. That's really beautiful. And he said, oh, no, what did we do? What did we do? He could have said that from the beginning. He could have said, hey, whoa, what are you doing? I'm Roman. But he, he allowed himself for the sake of the gospel and the sufferings of Christ. He allowed that to happen to himself. So to try to leverage that particular piece there where he just simply appealed to the laws of the land and say, I'm going to go cast a ballot toward the commander-in-chief, I, I really have a difficult time using that for support in that way. And I think, too, we need to remember our citizenship, ultimately, in these, in these because these are the things we're dealing with are spiritual questions. They're, they have spiritual ramifications. Yes, there are ramifications on earth, and, and I understand that. But ultimately, these are really our eternal issues. So remembering our true citizenship, you know, again, we're called in multiple places to be pilgrims and strangers. Um, one, one story that comes to mind is um, I was down in Costa Rica one time, and uh, we just had a new president in and, and uh, who was talking about dropping bombs here, there, and everywhere. And then the local nationals there in Costa Rica we were, were there out to lunch, and, and they were talking to me and saying, look at you and your country and all these things you do, and really were placing it on me. It's like, no, I, I, I think that's wrong. I disagree with that. And as we went into this whole conversation, um, they really learned to appreciate it. Gave, actually, it gave me a beautiful opportunity to describe how I personally serve another king. I, I don't want to get confused and say I don't have a residence in the United States. There is no doubt. I, I have a citizenship there. But ultimately, my allegiance lies with the Lord Jesus Christ. And with him. And so I will not drop a bomb on anybody. I won't even vote for the person who drops a bomb on anybody because I love them too much. And I think that's even the question we're getting to, and maybe some of the challenges we find in some of our associative circles. I just want to say this non combatant is not the same thing as non resistant. We have to go deeper than non combatant. Like non combatant is me raising my hand saying, okay, I won't kill you. But if we say I'm non-resistant, ultimately what it's saying is, I love you. And that's what the Lord showed to us, is he was very much non-resistant, even unto death. And will we be willing to do that? Even if all these things, trust me, all three of us brothers sitting here, I know I can speak for them too. We enjoy, thoroughly enjoy, the things that we have here in in this land. Should they all be taken away? It's a prayer at my dinner table. I trust you brothers pray. Should they all be taken away? Would God help us to be just as content, just as peaceful, just as trustworthy? And I would contest that even the the different countries around us where they don't have all these blessings seem in some way, in some measure, to have even a closer relationship with the Lord where they're not bombarded with all these so-called blessings. So I, I, I don't know that always all these things have done the church so much good. It's, it's been said, too, another quote comes to mind from, I think, an elder brother once. You know, our forefathers have proven to, to be able to survive persecution, but we'll be the first church age to see if we can survive prosperity. It might be going down a little different vein of thought there, but I, I, in discussing this with others um, on whether or not to vote, it's oftentimes looked at as that, you know, we are American citizens and we live in this great land with all of these beautiful freedoms. And we're, we're given really a unique opportunity to give a voice into our government and help make in the decision-making process. And so, you know, because we live in this special land and this special time and this special day, unlike any other time in the history of the world, you know, wouldn't it then be wrong if we don't exercise our citizenship in this capacity, you know, to be able to use that? And I, I guess, and, and maybe you brothers would have some thoughts on this, could add a little clarification to it. I, I certainly don't want to take away from, again, yeah, the, the, the wonderful things that we do enjoy and appreciate living in this land. My mind goes back to, uh, you know, the fourth century there with Constantine. And I, and I think about you know, once Christianity was accepted there and they realized they weren't going to be able to defeat the, the, the church 
And instead there was a, there was a fundamental shift there and it, Christianity was accepted and further um, later on it was legalized. And suddenly you have bishops that aren't just, you know, they're not being hunted down and persecuted anymore, but now they're part of a country. They're part made citizens, not, not just citizens, but actually put in places of leadership um, and, and the highest roles of leadership given churches, funding churches, the churches that they were burning and pulling down, now suddenly they're they're building, they're funding, they're giving them tax exemptions, all this sort of thing. Now suddenly they're citizens of this great empire, the most powerful empire in the world, the world power, the only world power. And given all of this power now, now they're citizens. And I and I think if we know our history on that, we know that when that citizenship was exercised, and now they're given all of this, that actually the persecution of the true church never stopped. I mean, that continued to be um, continued to be put forward. So that's a little different vein of the question that you asked, but I, I don't know if you'd have any more thoughts on that, but um, I think appealing to this special day and this special time and this special citizen, citizenship still stems from a lack of understanding that the true church has always seen itself as uh, its own political entity. It's it's always seen itself as its own uh, nation, as its own people, with its own king, with its own set of rules, with its own citizenship, with its own people. And whenever that has been wedded with the state, when the church has wedded with it, it's, it's actually produced whoredoms that have ended in untold lives being you know killed because of that. And so um, I think this idea that of how special we are, I think it's a, a lack of understanding of actual history and, and what that has actually produced in the past, that the true church has always stood as a separate people, as a separate nation, and today is no different. It, we're not living in some never have happened before. I mean, in some ways, but I, I, would you have any thoughts on that, Joel? Or? We're, we're not unique in that we couldn't be drawn into some of those same mm-hmm. allegiances. I think that's what we're, we're we're wrestling with is is it looks differently, but ultimately there is a conflict of, of interest and someone will hold the highest allegiance. And I think that's one of the things that we ought to really consider in this is where does my allegiance lie? And does it lie primarily with Jesus as Lord? Yes, there is a certain obligation as a citizen to obey the law, pay the taxes, pray, and things like that. But allegiance is a different matter. And it seems like in history, the question of identity came up. Am I first? What am I first? Am I an American who happens to be a Christian or am I a Christian who happens to live in America? Mm-hmm. And, and to that, I'll just add a scripture. So I, I referenced earlier the um, Hebrews eleven thirteen and First Peter two eleven scriptures about being strangers and pilgrims on the earth, and this may seem like a direct contrast to that. But Ephesians two nineteen, now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints, and of the household of God. I think it just goes back to where our citizenship ultimately lies. Philippians tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. And there, there are two competing and contrasting kingdoms, and they solve things different ways. And, and the earthly one has a place. The earthly one definitely has a place. And we'll touch on that maybe in a bit. But um, just being in this world and out of this world, when we, we get to that um, a little more closely, bring it home, um, we can say, I, I'm in America, but I'm not of America in that way. We've got one more question here, and um, we'll conclude maybe with this one. There's probably many more that could be asked. But what if all Christians elected not to vote? Well, I think when I look at just all the effort that's been put just in this election that's coming up, when you look at the, I I don't know what the dollar amount would be um, that's been poured into this campaigning and and just here in our small community the amount of time that has been utterly consumed by 
let's just look at the professing Christian community, the amount of time that they've poured into watching the debates, the discussions, the, uh, the coffee, morning coffee talk around the, the breakfast table. Um, when you look at all the effort and all the, the time that has taken, the money that has taken, I can't imagine what would happen if, if professing Christianity would take all of that energy and all that money and all that time invested, if they would actually pour that into doing the will of the Father and, and kingdom work of reaching the poor and helping the communities that they're in, if they would take that same amount of time and would have invested it in the neighbor next door that's hurting, taking meals or you know any number of things, uh, it's hard to say what the world would look like, really. I mean, if, if Christians would actually engage and participate in the way that Christ has called us to, um, I think what we're, again, what we're trying to demonstrate to the world is what it could look like by looking at the way that we're living and following his commandments. This is what the world could look like if, if all would believe in Christ our King and would seek to follow him. So I, I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's hard to say what that could actually look like, but I think it would be tremendous. There's the argument that, that says, well, then evil will take over and, um, but I think we oftentimes overlook the amount of good that could actually be done if we, if we would pour in our efforts that way. This is a thought. I think it comes back to the false dilemma. Is it either vote or do nothing? And, and in that case, it seems like, well, very obviously, evil will triumph. But the same false dichotomy or false dilemma is presented on things like uh, non-resistance, if you're not willing to defend yourself, or then, or if no one would have fought the Nazis, or things like that. Look at all the evil that would have happened. But those questions take for granted that uh, the evil reigns unchecked in the world, and it doesn't take into account the fact that God superintends everything, and that very possibly. Prayer, being united in prayer, would have accomplished far more good. I mean, I think it, it's, it, it's a very relevant question because it was, I think, at the 2016 uh, Republican National Convention, I think it was, when, when Trump spoke, he, he specifically, I think it was toward the end of his, I think about an hour and 10-minute speech, he said... In many ways, he was there because American evangelicals or American Christians had given him support and admitted that likely his past behavior hadn't necessarily warranted such a, a level of support. So I think that's it's a question to ask is that uh, was that if, if indeed he's accurate and that he was put in that spot largely on the back of Christian voters, maybe we could ask the question, are we satisfied with that fruit? And, I, and it's such a complicated thing. How would, you, how would you even measure that? Is the world so much of a better place? Is this truly what it means to make things great again? Those are lofty claims. Um, it's a very political claim. But Jesus' annunciation was that his kingdom was at hand. Angels said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. Is it honest to say that in the last four years, and this is not a particular criticism against President Trump or anyone uh, leveled at anyone in particular, but can it really be said that we remember the era of peace on earth, goodwill toward men? And if not, then have has American Christianity, so to speak, accomplished genuine biblical goals through voting or simply have we been able to say well at least this person didn't get in or bemoan the fact that someone else uh, is in and, and you know then fight the a resistance movement of some sort so as i wonder about this a beautiful picture really comes to mind and what if all Christians elected not to vote? And it ties with what we were saying earlier. It's not just that we not vote. What do we do? 
if that's not the right solution, as our brother pointed out, and you look over history, you know, what are the fruits of that? Then what do we do? Who's got the answer? We believe we have the answer, and we haven't come up with it, but we serve one who has. And so the church is to be the, the pillar and the ground of truth. And in this day and age, when the name Christian is synonymous with hypocrite, who's going to stand up and boldly pro- proclaim those truths? And so I guess the issue at hand is not so much voting on great things or speaking about great things. It truly is about living great things. I, I've got a quote here from Minicius Felix from around the year 200. And he says this, um, If we Christians be compared with you, although in some things our discipline is inferior, yet we shall be found much better than you. For you forbid and yet commit adulteries. We are born men only for our own wives. You punish crimes when committed. With us, even to think of crimes is to sin. You are afraid of those who are aware of what you do. We are even afraid of our own conscience alone, without which we cannot exist. Finally, from your numbers, the prisons boils over. But there is no Christian there, unless he is accused on account of his religion. So let's just imagine for a moment a world that actually lived out the Sermon on the Mount. What would you find there? What would that look like if you were able to open the doors into the walls of that kingdom and then take a look around? You would see a people in a world full of those who are poor in spirit, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. They're never angry. They desire reconciliation. They don't even look on a woman to lust, let alone committing adultery. People whose word is trustworthy, who, when are treated unjustly, return in charity, loving even their enemies. And that's just chapter 5. So my, my heart just rings with, with this, this beautiful mission that we've been given, to go and live this out directly from our King. Brothers, would you have anything else to close with? Yeah, I guess I, as I, just in closing thoughts, you know, Christ is not calling us to be apolitical. He's not calling us to retreat and be quiet, the quiet in the land. He's actually calling us to political action. It's just political action and social ethic that looks entirely different, and it's valued entirely different because it comes from heaven and it's not here of earth. And as we're faithful to that, I'm, I'm really excited about expanding his kingdom and calling others into it. Um, and, and that's a very political action. And that's a very real political threat to the corruption and the, the false systems that are corrupted in our day and time. And so uh, hopefully we can continue to encourage one another in that, in that pursuit of being faithful to our, our king. I'm afraid that too often when we vote, what we're really saying is my will be done. I mean, it seems clear that in order for the kingdom of God to expand, it is thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus showed us that in order to push it forward, it meant his will would have to be surrendered. And so we're going to find not in the assertion of rights and the assertion of citizenship, but in the surrender to almighty God that the kingdom of God will prevail. And to that, I'll say amen.